Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to 2 Kings chapter 2. We spent some time in our study last time being reminded of how important it is to be like-minded in serving Jesus. And we ran out of time, so let's pick up where we left off in 2 Kings chapter 2 in verse 9, where the Bible says, And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you? before I'm taken away from you. And Elisha said, please give me a double portion of your spirit upon me. And so he said, you've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you, but if not, it shall not be so. And then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by whirlwind into heaven. Now Elisha saw it, and he cried out, verse 12, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And so he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen on him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elisha crossed over. So they come to that comfortable spot on the other side of the Jordan, and Elijah's heart reaches out in love and compassion on his young disciple. And he says, ask whatever you want. And Elisha, he asked for that double portion. What a heart to say, you know, what I've seen you do, what I've heard you do, I want that double I want to serve God more than you. I want to be used double than you. I want to have that recognition or what we might call today that anointing from you, Elijah, but I want twice as much. You could say it this way, above all things, I mean, because you have to put yourself in, in the same place in order to really understand the scope of this. It's like, it's like what we studied before when God met Solomon and said, ask whatever you want. We really have to put ourselves in that position and say, okay, what if God came and gave us, or a a spiritual leader in your life came and said to you, ask whatever you want. Imagine the thoughts that would go through, especially from God, you know, you you have all your needs, and so maybe your needs would cloud uh, what you ask from God, and you might ask something personal. Or, Or maybe you have someone in your life and 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 they're they're you love them so much and they're going through and you ask something for someone else. But are you in the place that if God was to come to you and say, ask what you want, you would say this, I want spiritual power for your kingdom. That's what I want. I want my life to matter double for the kingdom than yours. I want to be used in ways that would bring great glory to your name, to, to the name of God, twice as much. I mean, it's an incredibly selfless request. And yet at the same time, in his selfless request would be incredibly fulfilling for him, deeply fulfilling. He wanted spiritual power. 
He didn't ask for money. He didn't ask for notoriety. He didn't ask for safety. He didn't ask for any of the things that might, we might think of. He said, I want, spirit, I want double of what you had. I want to be involved in what God's doing twice as much. I want a power from on high that is beyond my own ability. And if, as we study the life of Elisha, you will notice that Elisha performs exactly double the amount of miracles recorded for us in Elijah's life. He did get double and was used in incredible ways. And Elijah, it says, recognizes this is a hard thing, something that he is unable to do. Spiritual power is not conveyed by a man. Spiritual power is only conveyed by God. That's why it's so fruitless and really leads to nowhere looking to man for your satisfaction and for, your, for approval. Because it's not man that gives approval, it's God. And spiritual power only comes in relationship to God. And Elijah, it says, he says in verse 11, he's taken up in these chariots of fire, these chariots with horses of fire, they're separated. Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And then Elisha goes back. And the very first thing he does is he experiences a miracle of the double anointing that God gave to him as the waters were split by this mantle that was struck. Now, verse 15, it says, When the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, look now, there are 50 strong men with your servants. Please let them go and search for your master, lest perhaps the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, you shall not send anyone. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send them out. Therefore they sent 50 men and they searched for three days. And they just mark these words verse, at the end of verse 17. It says in your Bible, let's read it together. They searched for three days but did not find him. And it's an important part of this, part of the true story. In verse 18, when they came back to him, he had, for he had stayed in Jericho, he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? Elisha's met by these 50 prophets and they noticed the anointing of God upon Elisha, the power of God resting upon him. And they also noticed that Elijah is taken up and gone. But they don't believe completely that Elijah was taken up to the Lord. They think he was just transported in another place. And that was, by the way, the reputation of Elijah. That was the common thinking of Elijah. That, that he would just be taken up and then he would be... Uh, he would be taken away and rescued and then show up in another place. So this isn't an unusual, practical thinking, but it wasn't the spiritual truth. I bring these out because those of you that are Bible students, you realize, as we've studied many times before, that this taking up of Elijah is actually a picture of the rapture of the church, the taking up of the church suddenly, and I noticed that the taking up of Elijah was not believed on by these 50 prophets. They didn't believe it happened. It couldn't have happened. We, we want to go. Now, Elisha, he believed it happened until he was pressured. And they kept, no, no, we want to go. And finally, it says, it says here that when they urged him, verse 17, till he was ashamed, like he was just, okay, go ahead and look. 
But at the same time, at the, in, in the verse 18, he didn't, he, didn't not, he didn't stop believing what happened to Elijah. He just got to the place where he says, go, go look. And when they come back, he said, I told you not to go. And he believed in this miraculous, supernatural taking up of Elijah. And yet there were people that didn't. Not only did they not believe it, but they, they would come against it and say, no, I'll prove to you that it didn't take place. I have to say the same thing happens today when it comes to the rapture of the church. The gathering together of the saints to Jesus Christ. And for us as a fellowship family, doctrinally, we believe in what is known as a literal pre-tribulational, pre-millennial rapture of the church. Now, it's true, and I'll say it, while it's true that I'm not interested in arguing with other believers about secondary things, and making this a big topic of argumentation and, you know, we've got to spend a lot of time trying to prove our point. While I'm not interested in that, it's equally true that I believe what I believe biblically without reservation. And I, unlike Elisha, I believe so unashamedly with great biblical evidence for it. I do recognize and make room for those that may disagree. Uh, we're going to be in heaven together, and I'm not going to judge you or get upset at you because you have a different view, but I'm also not going to spend a lot of time arguing with you about it. Um, think about this. Think about, the, th- think about for a moment the, the devices of the devil to get believers arguing about the coming of the Lord. And so I can already picture one day people are going to be arguing about it, arguing about it, arguing about it, and the Lord's going to come back. And it's going to shock everyone. Hey, what are you arguing about? I'm here. I don't know how it's going to go down. I mean, it's going to be twinkling in an eye. And you go, whoa, what are we arguing about? We're out of here. However it's going to take place. The presence of the Lord. See, you might be in, a, in an argument with someone right now. Uh, maybe it's, it's, it's ongoing or it's tiring. And, and you, just don't, you just don't know how to resolve it. Now, while I don't have all the answers of resolving it particularly, because I don't have all the details, I do know this. When you fix your face and your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ, it makes things better. It makes things better. Because the arguing and all that, get your eyes off the Lord and get your eyes on other things. Now you're following man and, and you're, just, you're not fruitful for the kingdom. Don't, don't forget that we're serving the king of the kingdom. And he gave his life for souls of men. And so I'm not interested in arguing about it. I'm not interested in trying to prove my point. I just know that many, many people mock the teaching of the rapture and have replaced it with all sorts of theories. Some have introduced a very dangerous doctrine as of late. Uh, It's only in the last 500 years or a few years before that where the doctrine is known as replacement theology. Replacement theology is a vicious doctrine that downplays the place of Israel in the history of God, in the history of mankind. And the idea is very simply of replacement theology, which is primarily doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church and, at church and Protestantism, um, the, the formalized Protestant uh, church. And it's simply this. It's the false teaching that the church has replaced Israel, God is done with Israel, and uh, God is only interested in the church today. It's not true. It's just simply not true. And... Elijah here is taken up. And whether 50 prophets of God believe it or not, he's taken up. And the pressure was so heavy on Elisha that he's like, well, just go look. 
And just go look for them. And then when they come back and go, no, we couldn't find them. We'd spent three days looking for them. We couldn't find them. Well, yeah, I told you, don't go. Because, I mean, think about it. Elijah and Elisha were together. Elijah, he, Elisha felt the anointing of God come on him. He watched the very first thing that happens. He comes to the Jordan. There's a miracle. Like, he knows that this happened. He knows. But because of the pressure around him, he gave in a little bit. And it would be good for us to pause here and get a quick survey of a portion of the teaching on the rapture of the church. So would you go over to Revelation chapter 4 with me? Revelation chapter 4. We'll look at a few different verses. But really a great introduction to the rapture of the church is here in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 where John is writing after the letters to the churches, the little seven postcards that Jesus wrote to the seven different churches there in Asia Minor, the very first thing that, that after the church is addressed in verse 1 is, after these things I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. And then immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. John here also becomes a picture of being carried up and caught up into the presence of God. And as the door is open, as John is taken up into heaven, what does he see? He sees an open door. It's not a pearly gate like some of the jokes that go around with Peter standing there at the pearly gate. Nobody's there cracking jokes. It's an open door. It's an open door in the presence of the Lord. And when we speak of heaven, where it mentions here in verse 1, a door open in heaven, the very dwelling place of God, when we speak of heaven, we're reminded that earth is not our home. Is there an amen to that? Amen. Now, not everybody said amen because you can get real comfortable on earth. <laughs> you can begin to adapt yourself to the earth. Uh, you can begin to plan everything for the earth. The earth has a way, uh, what we often refer to as the world system, has a way of distracting us, keeping us tethered to the earth, uh, keeping us tethered to the earth by money and debt and concerns and gadgets and, and commercials and, and flat tires and all kinds of stuff that just binds us by the earth. And we just get so caught up in the earth and planning in the, uh, on this side of eternity. But then we come to places like the scriptures. I mean, other than the Bible, think about this. Other than when you open the Bible in all that you do every day. So let's say today, you woke up this morning, took a shower, uh, took care of business, was there going, getting ready for work, breakfast, went to work, clocked in, sat down, did your whatever you do for work. Uh, whatever noise you want to make for work, you can make it. So you went through, and, and you went through the day, and it went by really, really fast. And then you're kind of anticipating, should I go home and rest? Like many are resting today, but they're tuned in online. Or should I go to church and be with the saints? And, and, and other than being here, for, for some of you that didn't open the Bible, when exactly did you think about heaven today? I mean, you went so fast and, you know, you had all that deadline, you had that report you had to get in, then you had that customer screaming at you and, and, and then you spilled coffee and then you had to change your clothes. I mean, think of everything that happens in a day, everything that happens in a day. And if you didn't open up the word or you didn't get a little bit of time on the radio or you didn't get any kind of spiritual input in your life, but the world just swallowed you from the second you woke up, when did you think about heaven? Now... If you're are you guys tracking with me so far? Did that apply to anybody? Just a few people? Yes? No? 
Okay, so just, if it applies, whether today or any other day, just think of it this way. What happens to a person where that's every day for a week? What happens to a person, just a normal believer, and I'm not even talking about those that don't believe in God, I'm talking about us. What happens to that person when that week becomes two weeks? And it's not like, you know, it's not like you're rebellious or backslidden. And you might even be in church like you are right now. So you get a little dose of church, but then you know, man, some of you are going to go back to work. I remember those days where I worked all day, I took a few hours off to go to church, and I went right back to work, and I worked all night. I remember those days. And it was just like constantly, constantly, constantly pay the bills and get everything. And then you, what happens to a person like that? Three weeks, two months, their spiritual life starts to dry up and shrivel up, and you become vulnerable to any other kind of input. You see, when he's called up, when he looks and he beholds, there's a door standing in heaven. It's wide open. We have to remember when we speak of heaven, heaven should always be on our lips to remind us that we are simply what the Bible calls sojourners. We don't use that word very much these days, but we're just passing through. It would be better if we all lived in tents instead of houses and apartments temporary dwellings not more things that are more permanent that have foundations but it would be better in our mind and our thinking to think of living in a non-permanent on in a tent and then moving that from time to time where we're just passing through life is happening so quickly life on earth is temporary it's momentary it is passing away and so heaven should always be on our minds. I was thinking of this as, as a question came up this week. I was just so encouraged uh, as, a, as the Lord brought this scripture back to mind. Let me just read it to you as, you know, Jesus was speaking to his disciples, reminding them of heaven, reminding them of, of what's up ahead, that it's not just now. Listen, just listen to Jesus as he encourages his disciples. And maybe this is for you. It's just a word from the Lord. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and where I go and the way you know. And then there was Thomas. We have no idea where you're going, but that's a real thought. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? What are you talking? And heaven, a heavenly mind reminds us of an eternal salvation. You know, there's those that would say, oh, you're too heavenly minded. Now you're no earthly good. I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe you can ever be too heavenly minded. I believe it's the opposite. I believe the more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you are because you live with the right perspective. You live with the right perspective. This earth is not our home. So he sees a door and he hears, John does in Revelation 4, he hears a trumpet and he hears the voice and the voice says, come up here. And I wonder if that's what Enoch heard in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. Enoch walked with God and he was not. Why? Because the Bible says God took him. It's exactly what happens with Elijah. God takes him. John was caught up, a great picture of of the rapture. And what a controversy this has become. Why believers argue over this, I don't understand. I don't see the point. 
Well, you know, we're arguing because we want to have the right doctrine. We want to make sure our secondary point is made. Listen, whatever you believe, live like Jesus is returning. That's my word to you. Whatever you believe, live like Jesus is returning. Stop looking for other believers to argue with and go share the gospel with unbelievers. That's what you should do with your time. Stop trying to evangelize the church. The church is saved. The world is lost. You see, I get a little fired up about it because I'm sick and tired of it. I'm sick and tired of people when I'm doing Calvary Live trying to snipe and troll over and cause arguments and stumble people to listen to the radio. Take it somewhere else. I mean, if you have such a strong conviction, plant a church and let me know how it goes. What kind of foundation of life is built on arguing? As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us to avoid foolish and ignorant disputes that lead to nothing. Take all that energy and go share the gospel with someone. Or two, or 10, or 5,000. Because Jesus is coming back again. I readily admit, although I'm firmly convinced in the scriptures, I may still be wrong, but I love Jesus Christ. And the view that I have come to biblically has not simply been handed down to me by someone else. I've studied this for myself. I've done great deep study on this topic. And it just hasn't been handed down to me and I'm just kind of carrying someone else's mantle. It, it, this, is, this is what I believe the Bible teaches. And the view that I've come down to has given me an urgency about the coming of the Lord. The view that I've come to has given me a sense of the imminence of the return of Jesus Christ. And, and if you think about that, the view that you have, I pray, would have an imminence of the return of Jesus Christ, that he could come at any time, that nothing is withholding his return, that he is gathering together the saints whom he bought with his own blood. That, that he is preserving those that he saved from the wrath to come. The wrath. Imagine the wrath. That doesn't mean the church isn't going to go through trials and tribulations because that would be to discount what Jesus said. You're going to go through trials and tribulations. Little T, of course. Heavy stuff. But the wrath of God, the Bible says, was poured out upon Jesus Christ. And now where are you and I? Hidden in Christ. That's where we are. It's what the Bible declares. And so I don't, it's just become such great controversy that has wasted a lot of time and energy in the church. And yet, because it's a controversy, people will ignore it. People will avoid prophecy. They'll replace it even with theologies that minimize the heart of God. But Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming day of God. We need to know the times and seasons around us. Just like the storm clouds floating in, uh, in that point to the storm is coming, or <coughs> what we feel here, you know, when you start to get headaches and you feel the pressure and the weather changes, you just know a storm is coming, man. It's just like, no, no, I don't want that. I don't want the storm to come in. But you can tell, you can see the changes I love that part of living here, in the, at least in the sense where you can, you can look up to the sky and you can see, oh man, that doesn't look good. You don't have to be a meteorologist, you don't have to go to school to see that a storm is coming. Well, let me tell you something. You don't have to go to seminary to know that Jesus Christ, his return is closer than it was even yesterday. 
And, and the things that are happening in our world, the times and the seasons are literally hastening in the sense, not causing him to come quicker, but showing that the coming of the Lord is quicker and it's going to happen. And we as a church need to be a ready church, a prepared bride for the coming of our Savior. Jesus told the, the Pharisees, he said this, hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it that you can't discern this time? Luke chapter 12, verse 56. And unlike the Pharisees of old, we do understand the times that we live in. We see them and understand them. Over 300 times the Bible tells us that Jesus is coming again. And as the world gets darker and more disturbing, it sets a glorious stage up for the wonderful event that we know as the rapture of the church. The trumpet sounding, the voice of the archangel is heard, but when will it happen? And that's where the debate and the deliberation is. When will it happen? Will it happen before the great tribulation period? Will it happen midway? Will it happen after? Uh, they, the views are pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, no-trib. And we wonder, what? What's a tribulation and what's happening here? And we've studied through Revelation in depth and you can see it. There is a seriousness of how the world will end and... Here's what happens. Just like the prophets, oh, you know what? Elijah went up, but he's not really up. He didn't go up permanently. God just moved him. That's it. Just God just moved him. And, and I can already anticipate some of the things that will be on the front page news after the rapture, after believers. Are, you know, the rapture is going to be a cataclysmic event. It's not going to be a quiet, you know, because sometimes in, in movies it's kind of depicted as all of a sudden, you know, I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know. But the movies, they have, they have you just all the clothes and the shoes are right there, right? And it's like, whoa, and it's just kind of a cool thing and everybody, it's going to be cataclysmic. The, the world's going to be beginning, it's going to be an upheaval. It's going to be a, 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 an absolute surprise to those that are here. And and what's going to happen is, is that I can already see, you know, the headline New York Times, aliens have come and stolen, because we, you know, we're going to Mars, and I know there's somebody, and aliens have come, and, and all the things that might be. I just want you to know that however it's going to go down, Jesus Christ is returning for his church. And it's my responsibility to prepare you, remind you, and point you to the coming of the Lord. Now, some would look at the word and say, well, you know, you believe in the rapture, but the, it's not even, that word's not even used in any English translation. And because it's not used, then it's just something that was invented by man. Well, let me just say that if you search through your scriptures and you look for the word Bible, uh, the word Bible is not anywhere in any English translations either. It's a word that we use to describe a book. And whether it is a word that's used in the scriptures is not as relevant as what the word means. But you know, the word rapture is found in the holy writings. It just depends on what version you're using. Because if you happen to have pulled out a Latin version of the Bible, the word rapturus or raptus, depending on what version it is, is absolutely used. Jot it down. Or actually, jot it down, but also look at it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. This is just a minor overview tonight. You can go back into the website on calvaryaurora.org and just put the word rapture in the search engine, and you'll pull up the studies that we've done more in depth on this topic. But for the sake of our time, um, as you look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Verse 17, 
It says, then we who are alive and remain shall be, and circle that word, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we, we shall always be with the Lord. Now, that word phrase, caught up, is actually the Greek word harpazo, and in the Latin version, it's like we get many of our words from Latin, as we get many of our English words from the Greek, and rapture is just another phrase of being caught up, which is what's happening to Elijah, what happened to Enoch, John's caught up in his vision in the book of Revelation, and the church is predicted here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, as being caught up together with the Lord in the air. I don't want you to get confused over the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus Christ. They're two different events. In the rapture, Jesus Christ comes for his church. He doesn't come all the way to the earth, but like Thessalonians says, we meet him in the air. In the second coming, Jesus comes with his church, and he comes and he lands right there on the Mount of Olives, splits it in two. I believe the second coming of Jesus will be seven years after the rapture. I know there are a lot of different views, but I'm firmly convinced that Jesus will remove his church from the earth before the great tribulation period. You know, one of the reasons that surveys are showing today that the coming of the Lord is not so important and that Israel plays a very low value and priority in these younger evangelicals or however they want to categorize them. It doesn't really matter to me. Those that assess themselves as Christians and they minimize the coming of Jesus and they minimize Israel is, is, is one of my theories is not just a lack of Bible study, not just a lack of understanding the scriptures, but it is the overwhelming sense of this narcissistic culture. Because when all you do is think about yourself, talk to yourself, talk about yourself, when all you do is live within the bubble of self and other people that live in their bubbles of self, the coming of the Lord would be a great interruption to your narcissistic life. It would come as a great sudden tragedy to a life that's lived for self instead of a life that's lived selflessly. Which I think in every generation you would be able to pin this, but you understand in our generation and the generation before and after, and as it just seems to get progressively worse, you, you can see why Jesus made following him the very first decision is to what? Deny self. Deny self. And I wonder if the argumentation over this and all of the time spent trying to convince other believers otherwise isn't also a symptom of the same thing. A symptom of feeding self. Knowledge. Puffing up. Pride. Love edifying. Pointing people to the Lord. Pointing people to his soon return. Pointing them to the reality. The reality of his coming. 19 times in Revelation, uh, the word church is used in, up until the end of chapter 3, just referring to the church. But it won't be mentioned again in the book of Revelation until after chapter 19 because I believe it's another picture and a type of the church being up in the heavenlies at that time. And after these things... The church age, now John is back in heaven and he's got this mini rapture and, and he's got this sense of being instantly in the presence of God, just like Enoch, just like Elijah, and prophesied in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 of 
believers. And I recognize the other views that may be out there, and I would just say this. Please, 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 whatever view you have, live your life as an evangelist for the gospel of Jesus Christ, keeping your eyes on him. And just go for it. And then we'll all figure, we'll all find out when we're all together in the presence of the Lord, we'll find out what it was. And then only then will the Bema seat separate us by what our life was in what was done for the kingdom and for others. And may the Lord protect us and help us as we live our lives for him. So come back now to Kings as we close up in the chapter. Just looking at Elijah being caught up so suddenly, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. And there are those today that simply don't, do not believe in the rapture of the church. They don't believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And, and that type of thinking leads to all sorts of other things that we want to stay away from and keep our eyes on the imminent, urgent return. We don't want to be, remember, as Jesus gave the parable of the ten virgins, five were wise, five were unwise. What made the five wise? They were ready and watching at any moment. What made the five unwise? They were not ready, nor were they watching. And we want to be ready and watching. Now, verse 19, pick up where we were. Then the men of the city said to Elisha, please notice the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the ground barren. And he said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. And so they brought it to him. And then he went out to the source of the water and cast the salt in there and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From it there shall be no more death or barrenness. So the water remains healed to this day according to the saying of Elisha, which he spoke. So the area, they say, was very beautiful where they were, but the water was sickening and deadly. And it was affecting the women and the trees. And Elisha heals the water by prophesying and adding salt. And God is affirming his call on this young man, but it also gives us a picture of an illustration that Jesus will give later by declaring the church to be the salt of the earth. The healing, preserving influence on the earth today is you and me and our faith and relationship with Jesus Christ. Who else on the earth today is speaking out from the un, for the unborn in the womb? Primarily, it's believers. Why? Because God teaches us the value of a baby at conception. So who speaks up? But, but to silence the church on topics like this, what happens to our saltiness? Or a better question is, how is your saltiness lately? And I'm not speaking about, you know, when you put too much salt on something. You know, when I was, when I was a kid, I was one of those guys that when we went to a restaurant, I would take the cap off the salt. And occasionally, if I could peek uh, on the way out, Watching someone pour that on, it would give me great joy to see so much salt ruin their food. I was a rotten kid. I can give you illustrations of old. But, but sometimes believers are like that. <clears throat> we just pour the whole thing on them. And then they get all mad, you know, because you've offended them. You haven't let the gospel offended them because you offended them before, long before you had an audience with the gospel. And, and so salt, you have just the right amount in order to make a difference in order to bring preservation, in order to bring flavor. And, and you think of the church and how the church, that the, the attempt of the church to be silenced. Now let me just say this. It's not something we're going to develop, but it doesn't matter what government, what, what a government decision is. It doesn't matter what laws are passed. 
It doesn't matter if you and I lose everything that we own. A believer cannot be silenced until they choose to be silenced. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the laws are. Remember they brought the disciples, they brought Peter before the laws and said, don't you ever say anything about this. They go, oh, I'm so scared. We'll never say anything about Jesus again. We want our comfortable life and we don't want any more problems. Was that their response? No. And it wasn't that, you know, go, let's go get some picket signs and, and let's change the laws as good as that might be. That wasn't their response. I mean, we get back to the early church. Their response was, look, you do whatever you want to do with me. It's your choice. Power's been given to you by God. You do whatever you want. But then you decide whether it's wise for us, and I'm paraphrasing, you decide whether it's wise for us because we're going to obey God and not man. The only way the church will be silenced is if the church decides to be silenced. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter what laws they change. Well, you know, we'll tax them. <laughs> okay. Uh, we'll take away their building. Really? We'll throw you in jail. Wow. Like what? what? What is it that the only thing that will silence you is you? And so you can see how it goes together. The urgency of the Lord, we got to get busy. It, it, and, you know, we live in a country where we can participate in politics, and we should. That, that, don't, don't misunderstand me. We should participate in every level. Um, but know, know this. While the laws are favorable for the church, to whom much is given, much is required. The laws aren't favorable so we can stay comfortable. The laws are favorable so we can be more aggressive. But we know from church history, whenever the church gets soft, tribulation comes. Why? Stir them up. That's what happened in Jerusalem. The early church got comfortable. Didn't Jesus say, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Jerusalem and Jerusalem and then all of Jerusalem? Is not, is that, no, that's not what he said. He told them very specifically what the call of God, what their calling in evangelism was. You're going to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other parts of the earth. Well, when is it that they decided to go to Judea, Samaria, and other parts of the earth? When persecution came. Otherwise, they were pretty comfortable in Jerusalem. And it was even then that most of the religious leaders stayed in Jerusalem while most of the church was scattered. And the gospel is here with us today uh, in Colorado because of the apostles, uh, or the disciples, the apostles, the believers of the first century responding to persecution by going out with the gospel. You can't silence the church. I think it was said by, I forget who said it, but the, uh, when they started killing believers as believers are dying for their faith all around the world today, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You can't kill the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. You kill one, ten will rise up. You kill ten, one will take their place. You can't kill the church. It's still with us. It's going to outlast us until the coming of the Lord. We have our place and we have our role and we want to be faithful with what God's given to us. But man, don't be silenced. Be the salt of the earth. And so here, healing is brought by prophecy and this salt. God miraculously heals the waters. Verse 23, he went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him and said, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. That's not very nice, let me just say. That's not nice. So he turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. And then he went from there to Mount Carmel and from there he returned to Samaria. So a nice little nighttime uh, story for your kids. This is don't mess with Elisha. I mean, it's funny and it's sad at the same time, but we have to let the Bible say what it says. 
We have to let the Bible say what it says, even if we don't have a nice, clean explanation of why God would allow this. There are these gang members, basically, coming along, mocking Elisha, calling attention to his lack of hair. But what they were doing was ridiculing and insulting the prophet of God. That's what they were doing. Of their own nation, their own appointed prophet. And Elisha confronts them, pronounce a curse, and these bears come out. And throughout the Bible, you can jot this down if you want to study it for yourself, but we often see God send a special judgment at the period, a new period of Bible history. And it's, if God, it's as if God's warning his people that a new thing's happening. So Nadab and Abihu were judged for strange fire in Leviticus chapter 10. Achan was judged in Joshua 7 for stealing and lying. Uzzah, remember, touched the ark in 2 Samuel 6. In the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira were wiped out for lying and stealing in Acts chapter 5. And now at the beginning of Elisha's ministry, these youths are losing their lives for their sin of cursing and mocking God's prophet. And unfortunately, the attitude of the youths end up spreading throughout the land of Samaria and Judah, and they end up falling over this, as you can read in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, and the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of God arose against his people, and there was no remedy. So Father, we want to take heed to your word and take heed to your coming Take heed to the admonition that you give us. Um, Even as I was talking to that brother today, Lord, I pray for Maurice and just the conversation I was able to have with him that, you know, the, the, the royal law, if you will, is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And would you infuse that? It's, it's not as easy as it sounds that we truly need that agape in our lives, the agapeo, where it's a supernatural love, where love doesn't naturally exist. That, Father, you would speak and infuse and encourage love in us. That, Father, you would enable us to live out the good and great commission. Not, not that we would be a part of the great omission of lacking evangelism, but the great commission to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We want to declare to you and appreciate the 100, 125 or so that were baptized last week, walking into the waters of baptism, both young and old and everything in between. Thank you for the privilege of explaining to, to them the significance of identifying their lives with you openly and publicly out of obedience, walking into the waters of death, being buried under and coming up brand new and fresh. I pray for the ministry calling you gave to many, the uh, empowerment and the dwelling and the, um, the descending of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And for us, Lord, unashamedly believing in your soon return, coming back for your church, simply just like you said, Jesus, you know, the, so many times we're, we're um, accused of escapism, but it's not that at all. You said to pray that we might escape these things. You said that. You told us. Pray that we might find ourselves with you, seeking you. What a play, prayer, that posture of seeking your face. 
escaping that beautiful, hidden protection that you give to us, Lord. And I pray for some, as, I, as we talked about, um, you know, just earthly living today and just how it's easy to get caught up in the work and school and kids and bills and hobbies and, and, and none of them really need to be all that bad. That's not sinful in and of themselves, but there's not a heavenly mind. It's not a heavenly mind. And even for those of us that live and work, like our, our whole vocation is ministry, we too must have a heavenly mind that we don't get so smart that all we do is study and we don't serve, give, love, care, serve. So pour out your spirit upon us, Lord. Thank you for this remnant that comes midweek, God, that we might just be filled with joy. Like your word says, or like that song says, I should say, uh, you know, we'll be blessed because we came. We'll be blessed because we tune in on the internet. We'll be blessed because on the way home, we turned the radio on and just received your word after a long day with overtime and, and meetings and that, Lord, your word would just wash over our souls, wash away and change our minds. Let us leave here with a fresh infilling of your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.